Welcome to We Think, We Talk, sponsored by Select Care Pharmacy, a pharmacy that is non-retail but that services the smallest of group homes to the largest of skilled nursing facilities with prompt attention and care and world-class customer service. All right, welcome to another episode of We Think, We Talk. I'm your host, Andy Garrison, and I do have a uh, good friend, a special guest with us today that will make for a very interesting show, especially within healthcare and everything related to it. It's Dr. Cynthia Smoke. Dr. Smoke currently serves as the National Director for Quality for Optum Care and is responsible for quality across Optum Care delivery organizations with national and regional Medicare Advantage plans. She continues her passion for the elderly developing policy quality programs and innovates with primary care providers to ensure high-quality care is received by patients. As if that doesn't keep her plate full, she continues to teach the master's program at Southern New Hampshire University and the doctorate level for Franklin University. She serves on several dissertation committees where her students publish on a myriad of topics related to quality, long-term care, and palliative care initiatives, correct? You did very well, Andy. I did very well on that. I tried. I, I tried to do that in one breath, and I can't see. I don't have my glasses on this morning, and it is early. So thank you for coming. I appreciate you being here. Um, Glad to be here. Yes. This is going to be a lot of fun. Let me uh, tell the listeners— um, Dr. Smoke and I go way back in the healthcare world. Um, I won't say how many years because we're still young. Yeah, I'm, I'm still way younger than we've been working in healthcare. Yes, way younger. But um, we've seen a lot and we've done a lot. Now, uh, for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do now. Uh, your bio, you know, uh, basically described it, but kind of tell us what you do on the day in. Sure. So I work with care delivery organizations across the United States, and we work with um, primary care providers on initiatives to provide quality care towards our seniors. So working with primary care providers on um, programs such as breast cancer screenings or colonoscopies, ensuring that diabetes care is appropriately given at the right time, also working with social determinants of health. So we know we have to meet patients where they are. Oftentimes, our um, seniors may have to choose between um, paying their light bill or providing prescriptions. So my team works with their providers to make sure that um, you have mail-in pharmacy medications, you have um, your utilities paid to ensure that you can take your medications and you do have the appropriate care at the right time at the right place. So whether that's at your home or in an institution, Institutional setting. My team works with the PCP offices uh, across the nation, and we ensure that that gets done. Uh, we work with all Medicare Advantage plans. Um, Optum Care is a division of United Health Group, which owns United Health Care. Mm -hmm. uh, so they are, of course, a major plan that I work with. But my clients also include Aetna, Anthem, Cigna, and every regional plan that you can think of across the U.S. Right. And that's definitely a big job. Our seniors, um, especially now known as the baby boomer population, 
it's grown at a rate, uh, you know, that we knew years ago we tried to plan for. Uh, but I don't think, you know, really uh, we did that good of a job. Um, really ex- looking at it now, especially knowing, not knowing rather that our nation would, you know, face a pandemic. Um, we, you know, and that would create shortages in many industries, including the drug industry and uh, definitely the healthcare industry. Sure. So one of the initiatives that, um, you know, pandemic-wide, we knew that we had to convert um, many of our practices to telemedicine immediately. Uh, It's hard to take care of a diabetic patient when they're fearful of coming in or going anywhere, for that matter, during a a pandemic. So converting things to, to telemedicine. But then you have that I don't know how to use an iPad or I don't even have an iPad. So how do we, you know, do that? And and working with our patient navigator programs, our um, nurse practitioners, we have uh, grand pads that we would um, take to uh, homes in order for them to receive annual wellness visits, ask questions to their providers, um, just ease their fears uh, because fearful uh, uh, patients are going to not get the care that they really need, right? Mm -hmm. You really need to have care when you're a diabetic. But how do you do that if you can't go into the office? Um, How do we keep them out of the ER if you have a cardiac or pulmonary event? And so easing those fears um, really did make a difference. And and how quickly did, or or were you surprised how quickly that... uh, the patients picked up on the technology? Um, It it was really surprising. A lot of them thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of this, you know, they said, I I heard my my grandson talk (laughs) about FaceTime. And uh, so it was interesting that they could see what their grandkids were talking about. It was just with their provider. And and so it was it was neat to um, see kind of light bulbs turn on on their head like, OK, I, I'm I'm OK. I got to see my provider, although he didn't have his hands on me. Um, I had a nurse practitioner do his hands work. And, and right. that was pretty neat. I got to deal with that personally, though. My mom, um, she called me up and and, uh, you know, you and I have spoken my mom over the years, you know, and and uh, she's we'll say particular. We'll use that, you know, she likes things done a certain way. And uh, she called me, and it was, I would say, probably August, September of 2020. And her uh, rheumatoid physician needed to have a uh, teleconference. Now, my mom said, Andy, there's no way you can actually have a doctor's visit over the phone. How in the world am I supposed to do that? I mean, and went on and on with me. And, you know, it was just, I think it was more fear. Right. That it, of not seeing that doctor and the doctor wouldn't be able to to really, I guess, understand her problems in the pain. And, and so after after she had her teleconference, um, we spoke and I was surprised because she was relieved of the anxieties. She felt that the doctor did a good job going back through and mirroring her conversation making sure that the questions and answers were specific uh, and really doing a good job in prescribing and still managing from afar. And um, previous episode, we actually had Dr. Roland White mm-hmm. uh, on, and he and he spoke of that as well, how, how really 
the face to face is is good to have with a patient, but a lot of that are or are in the conversation is how are the kids, how's mom, but this way they're getting right to the specifics of what's going on. And in I think the physicians, the nurse practitioners and in in folks in healthcare that have had to incorporate telemedicine have done a phenomenal job, and I think we have all been surprised of how well it worked. Um, I, I think we're going to see healthcare evolve from yes. this pandemic. I think we're going to see um, more education for our providers on what they can do and make the best use of their time and their patients' time to provide um, that personal approach, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we do or provide scripts for these providers. So it's not just check the boxes and write your diagnosis down. It really is relating to that patient meeting them where they are, mm-hmm. hearing their needs, and um, referring them elsewhere if their needs can't be met by that one particular visit alone. Now, I'm going to take you back. Let's go way back. Because those of us that know you know that you drive um, you, you drive for what you want, and you usually get it. I do. And we know that you do take healthcare, and you do take uh, your residents that you serve uh, very seriously, and you will go to battle for them. And I've seen that firsthand. Um, you'll go to battle over uh, playing a game of chess. Uh, so <laughs> I'm a tad bit competitive. You're, you're competitive. Right. You're competitive. But but let's, let's, let's go back years ago. What drove you? to be so compassionate and so really an advocate that you are for uh, the seniors? Oh, gosh. So I have to go back to how I got into healthcare. Yes. And my mom, you know, as I grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. and I'm an only child, and my mom had to work during the summer, and she was like, oh, heck no, you're not staying at home by yourself during the summer. Mm -hmm. And so I— I, right down the road from in my neighborhood, lived the director of nursing for a county-ran Medicaid facilities. So think tile floors, cinder block walls, not the creme de la creme like we see, you know, here in the upstate of South Carolina. And so I would... Um, basically, they got a free employee. I would go to work, um, you know, with the director of nursing. Hmm get there, you know, around seven. And then my mother or grandmother would pick me up after they got off work around four. The nursing home fed me breakfast and lunch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was my pay. And um, I got to uh, help feed residents that needed feeding. I got to call bingo, pass out mail, do ice. Um, One of the most fun things was the wheelchair races um, with the guys. And I would, you know, do the ready, set, go when they would roll in their wheelchairs. Oh, it's the best. Um, But that's where I um, uh, found my love for Alzheimer's. There was a lady in um, the end of the hallway tucked in a room by herself. She was in a private room, and she couldn't speak. And I always went in there, and I just loved her. And she... Um, was mute. She would smile when I would come into the room. 
but I was trying to figure out some way to connect with her. Um, she didn't have any family that came to visit that I saw. Mm-hmm. Maybe they came on the weekend. Uh, but I felt she was lonely. So I took her as kind of my own. And um, I tried to find things that would make her happy. So lotion on the hands, Um um, I took one day um, a tape recorder of Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know any person in that generation that doesn't mo- love Amazing Grace. Right. And I started playing it. And when she started singing wow. out loud, wow. I was like, yes, I've connected with this lady. And right? how old were you? I was 12. 12. 12. And so I knew— that I was going to do something in in with you know nursing. So I thought I was going to go the medical route. Mm-hmm. I became a CNA. Right. I worked in an assisted living, and um, unfortunately, my first day on the job, a resident that had been in this particular uh, assisted living facility passed away, and he was obviously um, very loved by the staff. Mm-hmm. My first day, I could when I walked in, I mean. Staff members were really upset, visibly crying that this gentleman had passed away. And so kind of by initiation, um, they asked me to prepare him for the family. Mm. And I did. And I said, okay, I can't do this clinical thing. This is not for me. So I went into the administration route. And I went to Winthrop uh, for my undergrad where I majored in health administration. I was a little bit, you know, odd. I uh, uh, I knew I wanted to work in long-term care. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else wanted to be the CEO of a hospital. Right. So uh, my mentor, James Hacker, um, who was the CEO of a hospital, mm-hmm. recognized my passion, though, and fostered my learning towards my passion. I'm very thankful for him and his wife who um, really uh, just— mentored me, fostered me um, so that I could live my passion. I worked at another assisted living facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and uh, the administrator there, Becky Cunningham, Mm -hmm. um, if you're out there, Becky, hello. uh, She had me work in every position in the assisted living facility so that when I got there, I knew what that job was. So, yes, that CNA still came in handy because I needed to know what a third shift CNA did. I got to be with the maintenance man. Um, I needed to know how to cut off every emergency whatever mm-hmm. in a building. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to work with dietary and, you know, understand you know, how uh, first in, first out, you know, that type of stuff work on, on food. And, and I know you had to like that because you're always <laughs> posting food. And I, I, so <laughs> that was a fun part. Yeah. So uh, I know that was a good part. So, you know, doing that, I thought that I was um, prepared when I left Winthrop. I, I started out as a marketing director and moved up through administration and, and regional work with um, several long-term care facilities across the state. And, um I got to foster my love for um, um, just the elderly and specifically Alzheimer's. I got to work with Dr. Bill Logan. Mm. 
um, when I was at Rolling Green, he was over the uh, residency program at uh, what's now Prisma. And uh, he would bring his residents through our Alzheimer's facility so that I could teach them on um, particularly why the memory care unit was set up the way it was, um, tricks of the trade that we had learned that um, if if you don't know Alzheimer's disease, you don't know why we do what we do. Exactly. And, and so um, it was neat that um, I was knee-high to a grasshopper, we'll say. I'm still knee-high to a grasshopper being five foot, but um, <laughs> teaching Teaching those <laughs> residents. Say anything about- <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll uh, say anything. Yeah, we'll say five foot. So uh, Jimmy te- Chu, five foot. Right there, you go. Yeah. Um, so teaching residents, uh, or you know, medical residents, um, uh, how to take care of patients that they would see was really neat for me, being that these were doctors and I wasn't yet. Mm-hmm. Um. But um, so progressing through and um, I had the opportunity to work for um, another mentor and close friend of mine, Heather Hess. We mm-hmm. should have her on the show. Hello, um, Heather. <laughs> Glad you're doing better. <laughs> and uh, Heather uh, brought me to the palliative care world. Yes. And um, that's where our paths crossed for the first time. And I'm sure you'll kind of get into experiences with me there. We worked um, super close together. And uh, then I went into education and kind of my world went um, where I got out of actual day-to-day resident care mm-hmm. and um, started working with students that would be working in uh, long-term care. And then um, um, being able, after I went back to MUSC for my doctorate, um, being able to formulate policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have to say, I uh, I felt a loss when I left um, uh, my residence. I felt a loss when I left my hospice families uh, because I enjoyed making a difference in their life. I got to see it on a daily basis. And, and I really did grieve kind of leaving that um, because I didn't have that personal, internal satisfaction that I got for making someone smile. Um, and and so I had to kind of retune uh, my brain to think, how am I going to make a difference? And so now I do it on a national level. Now I do it with um, writing policy, writing process, uh, fighting or lobbying for change within um, National Center for Quality Assurance. Mm-hmm. Um saying, hey, we've got to take a do a better job of this or that. How are we going to do this? And lobbying for how we take care of our senior population as as a whole population, not just one person in one particular region, but on a national level. And so um furthering my education to do that and learning how to do that um, um did give me a re-sense of purpose and where I'm at. You know, I can relate it when you said grieve, when you leave the residence, um, a couple of things. One thing maybe you didn't know, go back to where you're, you're speaking of. Do you know when I graduated college, my first day as a nurse by myself, a resident passed away, a high-profile resident. Not that anybody passing away is not hard enough. Um, this resident that passed away where I was working, uh, my first day as a nurse on the floor that was the chief executive officer's mother. Hmm. 
Um, I remember leaving that day, supposed to get off at 11 o'clock. I worked a second shift, sitting in the car thinking, I have just went to college and did all this for a career I cannot do. Mm -hmm. Okay. But as you know, and we'll get into this a little more, somehow I continued on. I pressed through. I think Lori made Mm -hmm. me, my wife. Um, I pressed on. Continued uh, it's about the same, you know, really the, the same way you did my education. I wanted to, you know, to do more. So I kind of went from the clinical route into operations. Um, but I found that when I left the actual building, you know, working in the building specifically to every day, mm-hmm. I had this grief that I don't think a lot of people understand. And I'm glad to hear that you do because those residents were more than a resident. They had really become my friends, my family, like the stories I would even tell just on a daily conversation had something to do with, with one of my friends, one of my residents. Right. Uh, It truly did it. um, And, and I had to, I had to think, okay, You know, this is a huge part of my life. We're talking 15 years of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, putting them first. And how am I going to, what does my new world look like now I'm not in that building? And, you know, going to work for um, Select Care Pharmacy. And now, you know, working that area. And then I realized, well, when Darren called me, which owns Select Care Pharmacy, to work with them, I realized that I was going to get to educate and get to help multiple communities, large and small, uh, train and show the, I guess, the, the, the skills from the back end that we learned along the way. Um, to a diverse group of folks all across the state and even, you know, into North Carolina and Tennessee, as we were talking about earlier. And I remembered going back, thinking in my head of this one particular uh, patient that I had at the very beginning who I became very close with her family. And she had been a nurse herself for 40 plus years before, um, really dementia set in heavily and she became a patient of mine. And I can remember her telling me, even with dementia, you know, continue making good people to take care of people. And so now I felt my comfort in a being able to provide, whether it's small or large, it doesn't matter with great pharmacy services. I also have the privilege now of educating uh, going into the CNAs or the med techs or the nurses, giving classes. Um, and I see that spreading in a bigger way than I could have at one community. Right. Um, so it was hard at first, but then I saw that what I had done prior in my life was just a stepping stone to get me to a bigger picture. Um, and even us now, we're sitting here on my podcast. Mm-hmm. Um this is an outlet, a huge outlet for, you know, I honestly could never really imagine us being here for 
you know, hundreds of thousands of people to listen to. Um, oh, I can, Andy. I could totally see you doing this. Fifteen years ago, I could see you doing this. Yeah, well, I'm glad you could. <laughs> I, I think now, I think I, now that I'm ready, I think the opportunity of the fifteen years has given me. Um, oh, we could talk for years, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, I, I the the grief part, I can fully understand. It really was. I had to find a new me. Right. Um, I didn't know what it felt like when the telephone wasn't ringing all the time. Right. Um, but that was wild. It, it, it took a lot getting used to, not having to be on call 24-7, not wondering if I'm on vacation and something happens, I can't get to the building quick enough. Um, I, that, that was a new life to get used to. Now I have to say, working from home and telecommuting has its benefits, it for does. sure. It does. For sure. Um, but, you know. And I think— I, and to be honest with you, you earned it. You, you have earned it. So. Uh, thank you. I, I think so. But going back to the um, the teaching and educating, I have to say, um, you know, I've been in school now for, gosh, um, all well, my life. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, still, still continuing um, to this day. Um, and I can tell you what we learn in textbooks. Um, yet how we teach to, uh, people that are in the buildings are completely different. Um, you and I have that expertise. You're like, yeah, this is what the book says, but let me tell you how it works in real life and what's going to come at you. So, um, while you're trying to do X task, Mm -hmm. you've got to manage A, B, and C that's coming at you. And this is how you do it. And I think with, um, the years of expertise that both and both of us have had, um, we're able to work with, um, with students and continue that. I know um, working with my doctoral students, these are um, CEOs of hospitals, CFOs, mm-hmm. COOs, CNOs, the C-suite executives. And um, I go back to my 12-year-old self mm-hmm. and meeting that resident or that patient where they are. Where they are. And that is so important. And even for... A doctoral student. This is someone that you picture at a high level in their life. It, it definitely they have ambition, they have drive, uh, they they really do care mm-hmm. about what they do. But to get them to be able to meet each person where they are is a lot tougher than it sounds. Oh, it sure is because you get caught up in politics, yes. right? Workplace politics. It's amazing. Uh, and um, or lobbying politics. And you have to learn how to navigate this crazy set of rules that you're like, who came up with this stuff? It doesn't even make sense. Right. And, and you have to, I have to teach them how to navigate that and Take care of their patients or residents at the same time. Right. Right? Have empathy, show compassion, yet navigate a crazy political system. I remember I created a form, um, and this was within—I don't remember how many years ago. So this has at least been in my uh, particular file now probably 10 or 11 years. And it was— for promotions and, and yearly assessments of, of staff. Mm-hmm. And there was a question in there, and I know you've probably seen this question written in many different ways, but it, but it 
it basically said, are you able to handle crisis and continue to maintain care of the other patients and the other residents? And what I was really saying to them, and I would break it down, when you're an actively have someone that 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 unfortunately say took a a true hard fall possibly a broke hip um a potential subdural hit to the head you still have 49 50 other patients that are also just as important and need attention and if you can't control the the emergency and also control the other you're going to have a lot of emergencies instead of just one. And to watch someone in healthcare start where that emergency becomes, I mean, it's frightening. It, our, our first fall, our first death we spoke mm-hmm. of, uh, our first sickness, anything, it, it's really a frightening thing to watch a healthcare um, provider of any, of any level um, develop their skill set into being this like a like a kite they can give optimal care to the person that is an emergency need and at the same time whether through delegation whether it be through actual hands-on continue to manage the care of the others that is a that is a skill that when when someone develops you see that i had on that paper where i could make sure i acknowledge that for them right. because I wanted to almost give that uh, doctoral badge to them <laughs> at that point going, okay, now you get it. Now you are, you're really mind-focused on healthcare, And you can, you know, this, this is the person in my mind, and I know this is probably not a, a real person, so no one can, can say, that was me. But it's this, it's this person that's running around with, with literally bandages in their left hand, right? like a ham sandwich underneath their elbow eating lunch mm-hmm. and a syringe in the right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, never blinking and never look tired. People And never leave on let on that that an emergency is happening. No. Because those other forty nine people are gonna look no. to your demeanor as to how they should react. And as long as you're cool, calm and collected, they will be too. You can I call it the the duck paddling. Right. You look smooth on top, but you have to paddle crazy underneath. And that leads me to this, where you and I go back to to we'll bring up Heather uh, Hess. Uh, she won't mind, and she does. We don't care. She's in Baton Rouge. Oh, she's, is she? Okay, she's in Baton Rouge. Today. She'll hear this though. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where the fighting for our patients comes in. I think this is where we all became really good friends. Um, oh, I think friends, team, yes, um, camaraderies, just, just absolutely. We we knew we were all supposed to be on the same boat at the same time. Yeah, like we were paddling this boat in, and to to give people sort of a a picture of this, imagine uh, there's three or four of us sitting in a room, and this was battling for residents that needed hospice care at the time. And through politics, the way that laws are sometimes written, and I'll use one in in particular that used to just be all over me. Um, Adult failure to thrive. Mm. Remember that word? Yeah. 
We can't use that anymore, obviously, but it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. But I can remember you and I and Heather sitting there with physicians in front of us. We did not care who. Right. And we'd hear the word, because we'd already had uh, really done a good assessment ourselves mm-hmm. on this patient. And I can honestly say we never went in and tried to find hospice patients. No. Um, that was what made it special. We we knew someone needed hospice. And, and, you know, a lot of people that aren't familiar, they don't realize that hospice is a service that encompasses more than just the the person that's that has a terminal illness. It it gives family bereavement. It gives it gives uh family counseling. It it Support. M- supplies and and really helps financially in some ways. Right. Uh, and we became really a three-person wrecking team mm-hmm. when it came to the rights of fighting and challenging the systems of what was subjectively written. Agreed. And in this particular situation, I know you're speaking of, Mm -hmm. um, it it leaves a mark on me today. And I tell this story um, often to my uh, undergrad or master's students. This particular family, it was a husband and wife. Mm -hmm. And um, they were in your assisted living facility and wanted to remain together as a husband and wife should. And it's awesome uh, <laughs> you remember this. It took point because this is, I mean, this has stuck with me for this many years. <clears throat> Absolutely. And um, the wife was going downhill and adult fire to thrive. And um, we had the um, provider physician's blessing. Yes, she needed hospice. And um, uh, I. I remember this lady, like, she is burned in my memory, um, just super frail. I, you know, even in my petite stature, I could probably pick mm-hmm. her up with one hand. And um, she was um, um, definitely terminal, and her husband wanted to stay with her. Mm-hmm. He knew that if she were to go to a nursing home, that um, he would likely not see her, mm-hmm. and she would die alone. Yes. Now, my personal belief is if you're on hospice, you should not die alone, and you should never die in pain. Right. And so we— um, uh, banded together, and unfortunately, politics came into play where— Heavy. <laughs> Let's just say it came heavy at Andy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Politics came into play, and, and the state actually came into your building. They did. And— um, Eight deep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I got that call. I think it was like 7.30 in the morning. It was early. And I was like, what? is going on yes and you said it's time to roll and i said okay um so rolled my behind out of bed yeah um called my team my hospice team Mm -hmm. um they rolled in eight deep i think we rolled in eight deep i think so and uh so we knew um that we had to show that you were not overstepping the boundaries in assisted living. Right. And that that family had the support and care that was needed to take care of that resident Mm -hmm. in their home setting. Right. 
And so um, I remember, um, um, you know, Heather's Feathers doesn't, they don't get riled up, but she was riled she up. Was, she was fired up. And, I mean, it was unbelievable. And, and, and so I remember the hospice nurse, she was like, oh, no, I, I've got my documentation. Right. Let's roll. Yes. And uh, and so we came in there. Um, I, I remember the, the CNA that bathed her every day. Every day. Was there. Yes. And so um, the state interviewed our entire staff. And. And my entire staff. We're talking mm-hmm. probably, and and you know this is on fairness to the state and to, to the leader of the agency that came in that day. They were sparked. I learned later in time they were sparked because there was someone in our industry that felt that that I was giving care beyond scope, beyond right. what the regulations were. So so this team. They came in to do a thorough investigation to do their job. They did. And and so they were doing what was required of them, you know, in, in their position. But boy, did they do a job. They did. They didn't only investigate that. Wow. They investigated every, every hospice patient. patient in that building. Yep. They and were there for two or three days. Yes. And, and uh, I didn't sleep for two or three days. I mean, literally, you have that many people inside of what... And, and, you know, let's scope this for people. The building, the entire community, not including dementia patients, we're talking about assisted living and dementia, was licensed, I think, totally for only 88 mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Okay? So this is, so now you have, you have eight people from a state agency. Okay, so you already have 10% of the entire building of agency and then at least eight from you guys. Yep. Okay. Now we're at 20%. All right. And so I knew we're, we're getting ready to go to war. This is, this is going to be something that I felt strongly about. You definitely were the boxer. I mean, you you almost scared me. I'm going, okay, don't go to jail over this. Cynthia. (laughs) Um, But but they were both we we did play respectful both sides. We um, did. But we really did have to fight to prove our point. And the CNA, the specific CNA I'm thinking of, was so well put together, poised with the state agency that it it was for me, it was inspiring. It because this wasn't a first day CNA. No. This person had been a CNA for years and years and years and living her passion. Oh. And and doing it where it could teach I to be quite honest with you, could teach physicians a thing or two mm-hmm. uh, in a class. Mm-hmm. And so after after this constant interrogation of every resident, because then it went beyond just the residents that were on hospice. It was a full, all-out, complete survey mm-hmm. of the entire 88-person building, every resident there. Yep. This includes medication management, kitchen, cleanliness, policy procedure, health, everything that you possibly can imagine, med carts, um, staffing, staff training. I mean, big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And then it was left 
us three against eight. Yep. Sitting in that room. And should I say it or you? Because this was the best feeling ever. Oh, the fact that we had zero. Zero deficiencies. deficiencies. After all that, literally the the head surveyor, um, yep. which is now a friend, <laughs> um, you know, after this, this person and I really worked good together yeah. um, in educating each other about new policy and procedures that may or may not come up within the system. Said, you know, we have looked under every carpet. We have been through the regulations and took everything subjective out of it and, and read it for what it was. Uh, and this policy was the 6184. Yep. And... You have zero um, citations, zero tags. I think all of us continue to set up like, yeah, we know. Yeah. But deep down, we were like, oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. then it was right after that. That was Since that was unprecedented, we started the new that, – that was a new level of care. Right. Uh, a new level of hope for families. Right. Uh, we won a national award. We did. For that. In the paper, yeah. In the paper. Uh, that was nice. Which then even had more questions come at me because, you know, I was not the wordsmith that wrote the articles. <laughs> um, but that was the first, and I think I was the first person in the state mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. And uh, I still have that actually hanging. Uh, you and I and John. Right. Which was um, the executive director at the time, uh, that picture, because I knew we had done something in fault for what was right, and that normally, I think, without a team as strong as you and I and Heather and ever in in my team and your team combined, would have just threw their hands up and right. and moved the person out. Right. They would have given up. They would have said, "Okay, we're not going to ruffle feathers with the state." Right. And and we'll just you know. Unfortunately, we'll have to do this, and um, I'm a bulldog on a bone, and so uh, yes, you are. Uh, that was not going to happen. I was not going to separate this family. So after that, and we we won our position on that. Uh, we worked so well together yep. as a team, yep. and we made you know, and, and I'm not saying this just from my perspective. I'm saying this from the hugs that I still receive when I run into a family, and this is from years ago, um, about what we continue to do in the industry. We were wave makers. We were. Um, we were told no so many times that no became just a challenge for us. You know, that when we did hear yes, we were like, okay, check that one back to the no's. Yeah. Because— I took a no as not yet. Yeah. It, I, I never— See, I think I think that's one thing that we definitely did that most people really could not understand this. Mm-hmm. We'd walk out of a meeting and somebody would say, "How did it go?" Well, they said, "No, y'all." But why are y'all smiling? Or they're just not ready, mm-hmm. right? They're just not ready. We never took it as okay. Take it off the table, right? It was never a closed door. Never a closed door. So we'd just continue writing more and just you know calling more. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the yeses we got were like, we're tired of just listening to Cynthia. <laughs> um, you know, 
Okay, she's showing up in Colombia at a meeting mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with this and saying, "Can you can can I ask you a question?" Yep. Um, but now I look back, and that fight it was so it was so I mean it took a lot out of us. It did. But I think more than one glass of wine was consumed. Uh, you know, those I can tell you stories about just even being sick <laughs> over this. Um. But now I know that there are communities that are being ran and dignity being preserved mm-hmm. because of what we fought or the fight we we actually fought. Right. And I'm telling you, after that three days, I think it actually came into a weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a supervisor that I had that literally was was happy that we had fought that hard and said, listen, you won't get a phone call this weekend at all. I can remember going to sleep and literally not waking up until that Monday. That was how yeah. exhausting it was. And but, you know, it's nice to look back and, and, and not that I want the credit nor reward. Uh Neither one of us ever financially gained anything from that fight. Nothing. It was just a simple moral. It, well, it was. Let's take not even moral. We it was did that what husband. Was, it, we did what was right for that family, and at the time, it was we only knew we were doing the right thing for the right person for the right reason. Right. Um, we did not know at the time that what we were doing was going to make a a regional um i guess moratorium on how mm-hmm. we could take care of patients in assisted living utilizing the hospice benefit and um i am so thankful that the state saw how well organizations can work together for the benefit of residents in assisted living. Right. And and to tell you this, and I don't know that I've ever told you this before, but I've mentioned it before on the show. One thing I professionally I've done in my life is I've had it always in my head a board of directors. Um, now, the people on my board necessarily did not know they were on the board of directors. <laughs> Um, but you and Heather definitely were on the board, um, from really that fight forward throughout my professional career, because how many times have I called you up just to say, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. And vice versa. Yep. Um, and because I believe when you get to that point, when you have fought a battle like that, and I knew that I could call you up and, and if it was a horrible idea, and I'd tell you, you would say that should say horrible idea. And that's making it the kind way, which you would actually say, you know. Um, but, you know, and we've had lunches really debating over things that needed to be, you know, we both could be on different sides of the table on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew how important it was to come to some conclusion because, you know, they always say that a great leader is quick to make a decision and very slow to change their mind on it. Right. And we worked from that balance, mm-hmm. and we still do. Um, even in our conversations now, we're still fighting the same fight, just at a higher level. Um, 
Now, let's talk about your teaching. Let's talk about that for a moment because we got to bring some funny into this. Oh, gosh. Um, now, <clears throat> I have had the opportunity. You have asked me, and, 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 and it means a mm-hmm. lot, too. I'll, I'll tell you that. I, I've had pleasure because there's a couple of times you have asked me to come in and speak with your classes. Yeah. The funniest time was um, I literally had my first vacation in seven years and came flying back in to it, met you in the in the uh, corridor, mm-hmm. and I had khaki shorts on and a Florida shirt, and you looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, look. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> and it went totally so good. Uh-huh. They actually related to it, and these these were students that were were future uh, administrators. Right, right. Okay? But all of a sudden, here comes this guy walking in when you were, you know, you had your dress clothes on and you were already ready. You know, you were their professor, you know, Dr. Smoke, Dr. Smoke. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in that looks like, is he off the street? <laughs> but I I related to, to them. And, you right. know, I, one of those students um, actually became um, an apprentice for me and went yeah. on to become yeah. an administrator. Mm-hmm. And is a very strong, she's a very strong administrator now. Um, and to be honest with you, she was very timid in class. And I she said, "She had no joke, smoke." Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that. So that was the funny part about me coming up. But one thing that does give us hope is with that fight that you had years before. I see. I see the level of expectation you give your students. I do. Yeah, high I level see. Expectation. I have personally seen the the way the exams are written. Yep. And they think at the time, because I spoke to a lot of folks after the mm-hmm. fact, this is the devil walking in Prada. Literally, that was a quote. <laughs> uh, literally. And they could just not understand why they had other professors that weren't so hard on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the word they used hard or would not give them a break. Right. And it's because of something that you knew that you could not express to them in words of just that form I described to you earlier. Mm-hmm. What it's going to be like when you have something going really bad with one patient and you have 59 others that you have to maintain. You create that for them by the time they are finished with your course they've either dropped you yep or they, they either come out with the ability to manage that skill set yep when i was uh, teaching at the undergrad level um i did have the highest drop rate in the college yes. when students got me shocker <laughs> i also had the highest employment rate so yes. the college's hands were tied. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, she's hard on our students, but guess what? Anybody that passes her curriculum gets a job. And so, you know, that's that's how colleges are graded on is, you know, can your students be employable after they finish your program? And if you got through my program, I think then it's you had hilarious. A job. Not to cut you off, but I think this is hilarious because I can imagine if I'm coming into your class and, you know, you're going over syllabus and you're handing out and their initial, um, I guess, prospectus 
the that's the word, um, of just looking around. They see you at five foot, probably the higher voice. Mm-hmm. I got this made. They don't realize that day two, um, inferno. <laughs> you know, like literally, you you don't ease them in. You you drop them right into the situation. Right. And it reminds me a lot. And, you know, obviously these are students going for, at the time, that was uh, like master's in um, healthcare administration. But it reminds me very much of uh, a nursing professor. You could not, you, you can't kind of give a medication. You know, you can't kind of give the right dose. You can't kind of give it the right route. Your teaching style very much encompasses that theory of, say, the nursing, mm-hmm. of, of the clinical style, even though they're operational. You can't kind of pay them the right amount. Right. You can't kind of play by the rules or the regulation. And so you, you bring up, you know, even in your current role now, writing regulations and policy. Mm-hmm. Um. Before you were even doing that, you were teaching your students how to properly write right. regulation and policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, up until just, you know, the last policy <laughs> and regulation I wrote was less than a year ago. And I still, you know, they're brutal. But I would say probably 99% of every page that I turn in is approved mm-hmm. versus, I, you know, the average person that turns in a policy usually has a rewrite of four or five times. Definitely. And I think it's because of the hard – because I had a professor like you. Um, you and I are the same age. We won't, mm-hmm. you know, So obviously you could not be my professor, thank God. <laughs> um, but I had Dr. Beth Schultz, and she was very much like you. And, you know, today she knows she's on my board of directors. Uh, she is uh, dean at University of Indiana. Um but she absolutely, if you were at a 91.7, that's a 91. Mm-hmm. Because 92 mils at 91.7, you see, of liquid or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And I just think that is so incredibly important because the students that have come out of her class and the ones that I know that I've had the opportunity to mentor with and work with and watch grow that have came out of your classes. Um, they're, they don't play. They understand when they write a policy, it is not subjective. It is word for word what they mean. Right. I, I tell my students, I'm not, um, Worried about you going out and being successful um, and, and, you know, what you may develop in the future. I'm worried about you being my colleague mm-hmm. with my name attached on your diploma. That's right. And I don't want to work with lazy no. or incompetent. No. I want to work with people that have passion, drive, and desire mm-hmm. just like I do. Right. Because that's. What we're going to need as leaders in healthcare 
to continue to make a difference for um, the residents. Gosh, for us, Andy. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> no, right. let's think about it. You know, not too far off, you know. Our students, are they're going to be our health care providers. Right. And I want some darn good ones. Mm-hmm. And so. I want them to recognize me, too. When they come in, <laughs> I want them to be like, oh, okay, right? we got to be on the mark. <laughs> right. But, that's that's what I want. But it's, you know, it's tough because we fought for where we came from. It, it was, you know, we had to learn the hard way as well. Mm-hmm. So turning it into our passion now, you know, there's a lot of a lot of professors and a lot of uh, people, influencers in our lives that have to even now, uh, some, some have passed, mm-hmm. some, some are still with us, that have to be like, okay, we've got to be a little proud of these guys because they fought. They really, really fought. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing that we still do. We have the energy to do it. I think, it ta- you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I try to, like, sleep extra five minutes now because I can. Right, yeah. Um, but I'm secretly always ready for that phone call to gear it up and go when it comes to health care and, and what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, physicians that I know, I encompass my world around people that that not necessarily have the same beliefs or thought process, but the same drive and willingness to fight for what they believe in. Right. Um, you know what? I have the respect. You can believe in something totally different, but if you're willing to fight as hard as I am, or I know as you are, <laughs> for that belief, you got my full respect at that point. And I'll sit here at this table and listen to you. And then all of a sudden, that listening turns into a communication. It turns into a podcast, mm-hmm. turns into a show, and people can take something from it. Um, that's why this podcast means so much to me. And I thank Select Care Pharmacy for letting me do this every week. It gives us a platform to let, especially what we're facing now in healthcare and and even with your doctoral students, you know, they're going through it as well mm-hmm. to let them know that you don't have to be a yes person. You can create new policy. You can drive, um, you know, if you, if you're convinced and you're sure that your way is the best way and you've researched it, and you just can't think of another way or somebody else has come up with a better policy, don't be scared to present it. Right. Um, I know you're on a uh, – I, I know you read a lot of theses, um, and you probably tear them apart. Mm-hmm. But I can also imagine – and I don't know if one – this is just me literally speaking from my mind because I haven't read a single thesis that you have marked up, okay? Right. Or I probably have, just not knowing <laughs> that you marked it up. But, but I can know. I, but I do know for sure whatever feedback that is given, I can guarantee you when it comes back in, their point is proven. Right. It's taken under consideration, under advisement. Right. They've, if they needed to further research, then they've done that work. Right. Um, I want to make sure. Uh, that when they go before their um, uh, dissertation committee, that 
you know, if I'm their chair or the subject matter expert for mm-hmm. their particular paper, that they're ready. So I make sure that the research is thorough. Mm-hmm. I make sure that the delivery yes. is thorough. That is so incredibly important. <clears throat> People don't realize. Do you know in public speaking, just to throw this at you, do you know, okay, I'm at an A in that class. I don't. I actually brag on this. I was going to say that I'm not going to brag, but I am going to brag on this. But you know how you have to give that 30 minute, no hum, no fully. Do you know what my topic was? I have no idea. Spam. Not the computer spam that people think of, because we were still dealing with uh, the Oregon Trail back in that time. Right. Okay. This was the food. Potted meat. Yeah. Do you know it's the national food of Hawaii? Nice. I yeah. did not know that. Well, that class did after I got done with 30 minutes. I'm sure they'll utilize that in and, jeopardy at some point. And how I came up with that is I forgot that it was my day. So on the way to class, I stopped by a gas station and they had a dusty can of it. And I pulled up. But I had known about that from hearing stories from my, my grandfather and my dad were there in the military. Why that was such an important food? Because you know, you know, it, I imagine a can made in 1950 is still good today if you want to eat it, if you Probably. choose to, right? But people just still to this day could not believe here. Here are all these folks giving these speeches on such political or powerful things, and and I gave mine on a can meat. So it wasn't so much about exactly what I was given the delivery on. It's the delivery I gave. Right. And that becomes so critical that once your students realize that how they position their point, how they discuss it, at what points to bring up what topics and what proof behind that Mm -hmm. into sight their truths. I mean, these are some, this is a skill set. They can win their, their, their point. Right. As long as you deliver it well. Some get published. Oh yeah. um, Because it was delivered that well. Now, can you imagine if, if you had to sit there and listen to me fight my case, you throw your hands up and go, okay, you're good. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going to stop. You're going to argue with me, but I'm going to have enough resources behind me, enough research. I'm going to have put the work in to where you're going to bring up an objection, and I'm already going to clear it because I already know where you're going with it. Right. Anticipate your— And I can only imagine how when you see— Someone that takes the advice, um, criticism. Mm-hmm. You don't give advice; you give critical, critical analysis. Yeah. But they can come back, and you see it, even with their same point, but delivered differently. It's awesome, isn't it? It is, and you know, I I do that to my students, uh, and that was just done to me. I delivered a, a presentation to a group of VPs, and uh, I got a 
not yet. We won't say I got a no. Right. I got a not yet. Yeah. So what did my boss say, Cynthia? Go back and write it a different way. Mm -hmm. Say it a different way because you're on point. This needs to happen. Yeah. Whatever, however it was delivered Mm -hmm. wasn't received the Mm -hmm. way we needed them to receive it. Mm Mm-hmm. Deliver the same point a different way. So mm-hmm. that's on my on my tab today mm-hmm. is to um, get over that not yet. I had a I had a nurse tell me one time said you have to. And matter of fact, well, we'll say it just like you said it. Meeting people where they are mm-hmm. in any subject or any topic that you're trying to get somebody to understand. We as people have developed. Let's let's say if it's something that's been around for a million years. The way I need to deliver that, say, in 1946, would not be necessarily um, understood or accepted, we'll say a yes, in 1976 or 2006. So sometimes we have to look at the people that we're delivering the message to. Right. And... Go outside the box, besides the message we're trying to deliver or the point we're trying to get across, what are they interested in? What's the demographics? Put all that in. And then basically, that's what I know you're going to do. I already mm-hmm. know and you know how this thing operates. And then you'll grab them. But I love how you take it because that no was okay. You're okay with that because mm-hmm. it, just, it, it helps – it will help you help them when they do say yes, and they will with you. But for future endeavors, whatever it may be for this client or whoever yep. it may be, it will help you be, um, I guess, more spot on for them. Right. And, uh, I'll and, learn their style. I'll be better. You know, it, right. it's a it's a way to make me better, yes. a way to make me more well-rounded. Yes. And, uh, and, and I tell that story to my students that, hey, I'm going through the same thing. I get it. Yes. You know, hearing no is hard right. or hearing that this wasn't good enough is hard. And it's not that it's not good enough. It's that they didn't receive it the way it was needed to be received. So we have to craft our skills. And I think um, as healthcare providers, no matter if you're, you know, in a national level or if you're in a building taking care of a family, you know, you have to continue to craft your skill to um, deliver it how it needs to be delivered and received best. So, you know, I still read books daily. Well, okay, I cheat. I use Audible. I listen to books. (laughs) I was like, when are you sitting still enough to um, pick up a book? No, it's I, I, I do Audible. And it's about everything. Like right now I'm on uh, NDEs. Okay, it has nothing to do with 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 uh, long term care, but it's near death experiences. Okay, it's just because I want to learn about it. Okay, um, it's interesting. Will I ever probably employ this? No, uh, you know it. It really is not going to help necessarily my style of of giving care. Um, but I still have found some interesting points in the way some of the physicians have approached things or. Approaching a potential client or a patient, um, it's int- I don't think you can learn enough about any subject because every subject in co- will come to you sometime in your life that you'll need a little bit of it. Not that I would like, for example, 
I'm not a uh, we, we we know this. I'm not I'm not a skilled mechanic. I wish I mm-hmm. was. Those guys are awesome. Um, you know, but me listening to a book on how say a combustible engine works gives me a better understanding speaking with the mechanic. You know, I know more of what he's saying. So I will continue that forever because I love the education part. I love the opportunity still now of in me, in, in medicine things change every day. Mm-hmm. We know it's every day. And um so it's just so important to stay attuned, I guess, to new things coming out. Um so I can't get enough of the education piece. I'll always continue um really with that, but our time is coming to an end. Um, this has been fun. This I've enjoyed been, it. No, this has been awesome. So I'm just going to leave you with one question that I ask everybody. If you were to write a book right now, today of your life, what would the title of the book be? How Drive, Passion, and Desire Can Improve Your Life. Okay. See, we can actually make a part two of that on a completely different podcast. Uh, but Let's no. do it. But no, let's do it. No, but uh, once again, of course, I do really appreciate you coming in. Um, I appreciate your passion for the field. Um, there's so many more stories that we could share and tell. But I think, you know, a lot of our listeners, especially uh, uh, aspiring um, nurses and doctors, CNAs and students, um, I, I hope their takeaway from today's show is that really, you know, besides a paycheck in life, when you do have a passion, accept the no's, take them. You'll hear a lot of them, but keep pushing to be better and better every day. And literally, you will change policy and procedure. Um, if someone makes you mad or you don't like the way things are being ran, just don't sit there and take it. Put yourself in a position to change it. That's right. All right, guys. Once again, Thank you, Dr. Cynthia Smoke, for being on with us today. You're welcome. Um, I hope to have you back again. Absolutely. To do a part two, I'm sure. Um, if you guys have any questions whatsoever uh, for Dr. Smoke, uh, feel free to email me at andy at selectcarerx.com. Uh, I can forward them to her, and I'm sure she will help clarify or answer some of those questions. Thank you, guys, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to We Think, We Talk. All information discussed on this show is for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your medical or healthcare professional for more medical advice.